Well, now I get to exercise one of my duties as lead pastor is to introduce a sermon series. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, we haven't been able to do that much in the past year or so, but now that everything's starting to return to normal, I get to introduce a sermon series to both campuses. And so I invite you to a book that has no dragons, no ten-headed beasts, no bowls, no vials, no trumpets. I invite you to the book of First Peter. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of First Peter? We are going to spend the rest of the church here through the summer being encouraged a great deal by this incredible book. And today we're just going to deal with two verses, uh, just two verses. But I promise you these two verses lay out the basic premise of the book. It's going to drive where we are headed and we are going to be encouraged by what it says to us. So we're just going to take this phrase by phrase, just kind of chew on it a little bit this morning and see where we are headed in this journey. The book begins, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there and ask two questions. Number one, who is Peter? And number two, what is an apostle? Well, we believe that the Peter who is the author of this letter is the Peter that we read about in the books in the New Testament that are about the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in fact, this Peter was the de facto leader of those closest to Jesus, known as the Twelve or the Twelve Disciples. That's what we believe based on, in part, internal evidence. If you'd go to verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and then note this, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he says there that, that I am someone who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And we believe that means more than just his actual death, but is a reference uh, in context to the entire ministry of Christ. So that flags right there that, that the Peter that says he wrote this book is probably the Peter who was the one who was close to Jesus and the de facto leader of those disciples. But all doubt that that may be who we are talking about is erased when he introduces himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So ask our second question, what does apostle mean? Apostle in Peter's language had a basic meaning of one who is sent, but when it is tied to the name Jesus Christ, it takes on the weight of a formal title. And in the early days of the church, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the leaders of the early church began to be known as apostles. So Peter here is identifying himself as one of the key leaders of the New Testament early church brand new church. And so we believe without a doubt that the person who wrote this book is the Peter that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who was the leader of the 12. And then we read this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And there we figure out that this is a letter. And most of the books of the New Testament are actually letters written by Christian leaders to churches or regions of churches. Now, the addressees are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's an odd string of words there. Let's just hang on to that, come back to that in a minute. These elect exiles of the dispersion 
are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You say, I don't know where that is. And that's okay because they didn't know where Kansas was. All right, so we're all good there. We're all good. But here's how you can just kind of get your mind around where this is. These five regions refer to what for us more or less would be the modern-day nation of Turkey. All right, so Peter is writing a letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion in modern-day Turkey. So now we ask ourselves a question what are these elect exiles of the dispersion? What does that mean? We don't hear that language much. Well, let's, let's work back to front. Let's start with the word dispersion. Dispersion in Peter's time was a word that referred to Jewish expats, Jewish expatriates who were unable to live in the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. The word dispersion is used three times in the New Testament. This is one of them. The other two reference those Jewish expats, people who had been displaced from living in uh, the, the nation, in the boundaries of Israel. So is that who he's writing to? Well, maybe because the word exiles refers to people who have been physically displaced. Exile is actually kind of a fun word in Peter's language, which um, kind of taken fairly literally means uh, an assembly of people who walk about. Basically, that, that means that they are displaced physically. They don't have a place. They're a group of people who don't have a place to belong where they find themselves. So it's possible that Peter is writing to people who have been physically displaced who are Jews from the nation of Israel. But there is a key word. It's the first word that lets us know that's not who he's writing to at all. And it is the word elect. Elect. Now, I'm of the opinion that every single time you see the word elect in the New Testament, that it is a reference to the people of God known as the church. There's some debate whether every instance does in the New Testament. I'm of the opinion all of those instances do. But I am really convinced that that is how Peter uses the word elect here. And part of that is because of what we read as a description of the church in verse 9 of chapter 2. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter is writing to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race. That, that word chosen is the language of election. That You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What is he saying? He's saying that you are, are the elect. You are the people of God. So when he says that he is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in these regions, we can basically just summarize that and say, the Peter, the one who was the leader of the apostles, is writing a letter to Christians, to churches who live in the region of modern-day Turkey. But now we have to say, okay, but but what does the, the exile actually mean? Is, is he saying that these people are physically displaced from the home office, as it were, of Christianity, which was Jerusalem? Is that what he's talking about, that somehow these people were refugees from Jerusalem? Or is he saying something more significant? Well, let's kind of explore that idea together. 
If you're comfortable doing so, and I know not everyone is, but if you're comfortable in doing so, why don't you circle the word elect in verse 1, and why don't you draw an arrow down to verse 2? The reason for that is because Peter saying where this letter is going is a bit of an interruption in the logical flow of his thoughts. So it would read something like this. To those who are the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Verse 2 will answer for us the nature of the exile because it, it all modifies that word elect, which again, remember, is referring to the church. So he is saying here that you are the church, you are the people of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father first and foremost. Now, that word foreknowledge is obviously going to be a very important word. In its most basic sense, foreknowledge means just simply knowing something ahead of time. But when applied to God, it has a broader uh, meaning than, than simply kind of a premonition. One of the orthodox confessions about the nature of God is that He is omniscient which means that he knows everything. And by everything, we mean he knows everything past, he knows everything present, he knows everything future. But because he is God, he knows all of those things as if they were happening in one big now. He experiences past, present, and future as one big now. So foreknowledge can mean in a really rich sense as applied to God, meaning he just knew it beforehand, meaning that you are the church because according to God's knowledge that that's the way it was going to be beforehand. But it means more than that, especially as Peter uses the concept of foreknowledge in the same chapter. Go down to verse 20. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He was foreknown, speaking of Christ and His work, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, does it make sense that God was simply saying, you know what I knew before anybody else did? That Jesus was going to be the Messiah? Or does it read better as it saying, God determined, ordained, before the foundation of the world, the plan to save the world through Jesus the Messiah. It would make more sense for him to say that this was the plan of God. Put it this way, it was the will of God to redeem the elect through Jesus Christ. So going back to verse 2, we see that these people are the elect according to the will of God, and then we are told they are in the sanctification of the Spirit. So they are the elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does that mean? Basically, it means that these holy people, this, this chosen people, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, were made so by the Holy Spirit. So God um, had determined these were the elect. It was His will that they would be made a holy people by the Holy Spirit. And then, it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Now, Peter will use the word obedience in his book, we think, in a way that is a little bit unique from the other New Testament writers. 
A lot of the New Testament writers refer to obedience as something we do once we give our lives to Christ. But, but Peter uses the word obedience as what we do in responding to the call of Christ for salvation. Put it this way, on March 26, 1978, I gave my life to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. I remember being in that pew and sensing Christ's call to me to give my life to Him. I responded affirmatively to that call. I obeyed the call to salvation. And so that's how it's being used here. He is saying that you are the elect, according to the will of God, have been made a holy people by the Holy Spirit, and you are the elect in obedience to the call of Christ. Your part of this was to to obey the call of Christ to be saved. There is this beautiful tension between this idea of God's will being perfectly reflected in mankind having a free will. It is a knot, it is a tension that the Bible never seeks to unravel, and the only thing that you will accomplish in trying to unravel it is fight with someone. All right? Just you have to accept that there is this idea that we are elect according to the plan, the will of God, and that we also must obey the call of Christ to us. And what happens when we do that? We are sprinkled by His blood. In our affirmative response to the call of Christ, our sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are made right before Him. So, we've been down in the weeds for a little bit. Let's pop back up to 30,000 feet, and let's just simply say this. Peter is writing to the elect, who are the elect, according to the activity of God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. You are, I'm writing to you, he says, believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, according to the will of God the Father, the sanctification of God the Spirit, and of the redemption of God the Son. All right, so we get that's who the elect are and why they are. But understand, elect modifies exiles in verse 1. So you could just as easily then say, I'm writing to those who are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. What would that mean? Simply this. He's saying, you are exiles, you are the people walking about in this world as a direct result of your faith in Jesus Christ. Put it more simply. When you surrender yourself to Jesus as Savior, when you begin to follow Jesus, you become displaced from the world. You become an exile from the world in which you live, and this, in every imaginable sense, becomes the place that is not your home. And you don't belong here. None of us do. This is not our place. We are exiles here. And that's good. That should bring us hope. You say, well, I'm I'm missing that a little bit. Perhaps. So let me talk for just a minute. There's a study that came out. I think it comes out every year. um, About six weeks ago or so. Um, done by the Pew Research Forum and, and uh, Gallup surveys, Gallup polls. And it, 
surveyed faith in America, and it determined, I believe this is true, this is less important to me, so I, I'm not as clear on the details, but, but it, it determined that for the first time in American history, those who call themselves evangelicals are not the majority in, in America those who call themselves not majority in America. Now, I think evangelical is a pretty worthless term anymore. It's become more of a cultural identifier than a word that has theological significance. But that's a big deal. I mean, we're, we're a minority for the first time. But that, again, that didn't surprise me. The only thing that surprises me about that because of what I do for a living uh, is that it just took this long. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me at all. But this really interested me. It showed which we all know that the most unchurched generation in American history is going to be Generation Z. So the youngest among us will be the most unchurched generation in American history. Again, not a surprise. But then it said, okay, you, you 46, 7% of people who call yourself evangelicals, raise your hand if you go to church. Do you know that Christians 35 and under, again, a smaller segment of that larger whole, Christians 35 in, the age, uh, in age and younger are more likely to go to church weekly than middle-aged adults and more likely to go to church monthly than middle-aged or senior adults. And that caused everybody to quicken a little bit and say, really? So they're a smaller, smaller group than the whole, but they're, you're telling me they're more committed? Why? Because they get their exiles. Listen, there's fewer of them coming to Christ, but it's never been harder for them to come to Christ. For them to identify with Christ, for Generation Z and Millennials to identify with Christ causes them to be an outlayer in their immediate culture. It causes them to stand out. When I gave my life to Christ, March 26, 1978, Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, the next morning I went to sixth grade, Greenwood Elementary School, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, marched right up to my teacher's desk. I cannot remember her name because I'm old. And I said, sixth grade teacher, last night I gave my life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. She looked me in the eye and said, that's the most important decision anybody could ever make. I am so proud that you have made that decision. I told my friends, everybody said, well, I've done that and I've done that. Everybody went to church, at least on Easter and Christmas, and, 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 and everybody had been baptized, which I was later that night. I mean, everybody had done this. Every, I mean, we were swimming in affirmation, but you do that today and you will not get similar affirmation. Let's not kid ourselves that there are not Godly Christian people working in public schools. My wife happens to be one. My daughter happens to be one. My daughter-in-law happens to be one. But my guess by and large, if someone got saved here at church today and went to school tomorrow and said to teacher X, I got saved yesterday, they may not even know what you're talking about. Saved from what? You fall in water? They've always known they come to Christ knowing they're exiles. And here's the deal. That actually draws them in. They see the distinctiveness and the devastating uniqueness of belonging to Jesus in a culture of darkness. And rather than shrink from it, they run to it. 
the younger Christians, smaller number, more committed than the rest of Christianity. And then here's what we see. The fastest growing segment of evangelicals, people who identify as evangelicals who never go to church, are senior adults. And we ask, why is that? And the reason for it may be the disorientation that has come because we're no longer the privileged religion in American culture. They didn't buy into that. A lot of people who just are merely professing faith in Christ and not living it out and actually committing their lives to Christ didn't buy into that. They did it because culturally it was accepted. It made you belong. Being a follower of Jesus made you belong to the broader culture. And now that it does just the opposite thing, there are a lot of people who are name-only Christians saying, well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't bargain for that. And so they're showing themselves to have never been Christ in the first place. What I'm saying to you is this. Being an exile in the broader culture because of your faith is Christianity working exactly like it was supposed to. Being radically, devastatingly unique because of the message you believe in Christ is exactly how this is supposed to work. And far from not being compelling, it actually shows what we're all about. And shows, you know, you don't, you don't follow Jesus because it's the culturally appropriate thing to do. You follow Jesus because he's God. You follow Jesus because his sacrifice on the cross is the only means by which we can experience a life after this one. You follow Jesus because his sacrifice on the cross is the only means by which you can be made right with God and have a relationship with God. We believe that this Jesus who died on the cross proved the sufficiency of his sacrifice when God raised him from the dead three days after his crucifixion. We believe that this Jesus whose death 2,000 years ago was sufficient for the sins of every person who had ever lived or ever would live, who rose again three days after his crucifixion, ascended to God in the air and that he will return for us visibly, bodily, in the air. That needs to land in the ears of our culture as weird as it sounds in order for them to know that we are not calling you to a moral rejuvenation plan and we are not calling you to connect with a new group of people who may be not quite as bad an influence in a thing called a church, and we just need an hour of your time on Sunday. That's not what we are calling people to. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel calls people out of darkness into light, and making that transition means you will no longer belong in this world, and it's okay. It's okay. 
we will thrive in that. It might not be easy. It may be, will be extraordinarily difficult. And it may cost you more than you can possibly imagine sitting in the climate-controlled comfort of your pew at one of the campuses of Blue Valley Baptist Church right now than you could have ever thought. But all you'll be losing is that which doesn't belong to you in the first place. And what you will be gaining is eternity in the glory of Christ. It's okay. Fear not. Embrace it. And call people into that which has made you odd for the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.